It's coming from down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Did you run up the stairs to do? <laughs> it's coming from downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. Take hold of yourself, Pam. I'm going down and search the place. Rick, I've searched. There's never anything there. Never? You mean you've heard it before? Yes. Rick, it's true, isn't it? The sound, I mean, you're hearing it too? Of course I'm hearing it. I wasn't sure. Pam. I thought I might be going crazy. Was that why you didn't tell me? Yes, that, and Rick, it's your home. It's all we've got to live in. It sounds so heartbroken. Now don't get rattled, Pam. There's a logical explanation for this. Such as? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode number seven, which is part two of our Halloween array of shows. Array, I guess there's only two in it. (laughs) It's a small array. And this time the choice is Erica's, so let's see what she has in store for us. I have chosen The Uninvited from 1944, directed by Lewis Allen and featuring Ray Milland, Ruth Hussey, and Gail Russell. And why did you select this film for the show? This one was kind of a gimme for my Halloween choice because I loved it for years. And it hits all of my buttons. It's the... Haunted House by the Sea, I Would Love to Live at Land's End on the base of a cliff in a big old house and hear the ocean every day, not have it be haunted, ideally. And it's got the gothic ghost story with lots of different undertones and undercurrents of weird things happening. It looks great. The screenplay has some really fun touches in it. And it's got a terrifically romantic song, and uh, I really like Ray Milland in this, so a lot of things, a lot of things to recommend it for me. And how did you come across it the first time? My mother had heard of this film, but had not seen it. So I think it was kind of a harder to see one. You'll correct me if I'm wrong on that one. And so she had heard about this film that was from that great period, But uh, it also had some genuine scares in it. So she had wanted to see it for a long time. And then we were just flipping through the channels, likely during Halloween, AMC or TCM, one of those. And it just happened to be on. And we were so excited. And we watched it with the lights out and had a, a wonderful time. And do you remember how you first saw this film? I think I came across it because of scouring list after list like I am prone to do. And it perennially turns up on lists of underrated or underseen classic horror films next to things like The Haunting or The Innocents, which are particular favorites of mine. Terrific. And so I tracked it down after seeing it compared to those over and over again. Yes. So was my mom right in that it's probably something hard to find, I'm guessing. It isn't anymore. It isn't anymore. In the stretch that you're talking Mm -hmm. about when you were... Back in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s probably. Right. Yeah. Criterion just released it on DVD. Mm. And so it's not as hard to come by anymore. But prior to that, you could only find it via a hard to come by, I think, Italian DVD import or VHS 
or just wait for it to show up in a Halloween marathon on yeah. one of the channels that you were talking about. Thank goodness, because we had a great time. So just to give a basic plot outline, we've got Ray Milan and Ruth Hussey. They are brother and sister. They're down from London. And they decide, spur of the moment, to buy a gothic seacoast mansion. And guess what? It's haunted. That's a, that's a boo-boo. <laughs> Get it? The, <laughs> I, did, I just didn't. <laughs> first you slow down oh good one pay attention a little okay more. i'll try anyway anyway and uh so in the course of discovering that the house is haunted they become friends and or romantically involved with gail russell who is the daughter of the ghost who is haunting the mansion and i won't give away much more than that or have we already decided spoiler alerts for it's a 71-year-old <laughs> okay. movie. Guess what? Her mother wasn't really her mother. And they're both haunting the joint. Yeah, it's ghosts, plural, this ghosts. time. Ghosts, yeah. And so where does this figure in cinematic lore as far as haunted house movies go for you? Well, the haunted house on film, just to give you a little bit of film history, and this is not exhaustive, so everybody can feel free to leave comments about me being wrong. No problem. We've got The Haunted House on film dating back to 1912 with The Haunted House. But for the most part, everything that I found up to this period really fell into the horror comedy genre. The really well-known ones being The Cat and the Canary, mm -hmm. Hold That Ghost, The mm -hmm. Ghost Breakers, multiple versions of The Ghost right. Breakers, multiple versions of The Cat and the Canary. So this was really the first one to take that seriously, even though there are, of course, some laughs sure. in the script, and it's not deadly serious. No, it's, Get it's, it? it's pretty... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So it's not deadly serious, but it takes the haunting seriously. Right. It's the first time, or at least the first significant time, that the ghost is actually revealed to be a true supernatural presence. Yes. It wasn't someone trying to get the inheritance. Exactly. It wasn't gangsters. It wasn't the guy behind the curtain that Scooby-Doo figured out that yeah. it was Old Man Jenkins. Right, right. It was it's an actual, actual ghost. Actual haunting. And for me, then, after this, it only gets better with The Haunted House on film. You mentioned before The Haunting and The Innocence, those mm -hmm. being, for me, the top, top, top of that. Le Legend of Hell House being oh, another yeah. fantastic one. That may be my favorite. Yeah. So you've got really fantastic things coming afterwards. So this is, a, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but it's a, it's a great turn, I think, for the genre to have made. Sure. And I had mentioned before my mom hearing that this movie had some real scares in it. And there are several moments that I love. One being when all is in darkness and Rick comes out and Lizzie, the maid, is saying something, but he can't see her. And then he puts the light on her, and she's been in the room the whole time. I think that that's a great little spooky moment. Mm -hmm. I really like that. And then the ghost effect itself, I really enjoy. That effect was actually cut out by the English censors oh. when it was shipped overseas for exhibition. Deemed too scary, I'm guessing, maybe? I think that's why. Okay. And it turns out to be a little ironic because... Critics then praised Lewis Allen for his restraint. I don't think he actually wanted to put it in in the first place. Oh, okay. To be honest. But then when they took it out, the critics justified his instincts by praising how restrained it was and not overboard wow. with the special effects. 
So the UK audiences did not see the version that the US audiences did with the Spectre in it. Okay. Well, I think with the Spectre in, it's definitely not overboard for me. No, it's at least in this day and age, it's super subtle. Yes. Yeah. I love the way it looks. It's very ethereal looking. Mm-hmm. You can't quite get a fix on her face. And it's of, of Mary Meredith, who is we think is Stella's mother. And we've seen her portrait multiple times. She is a presence in the film. And Do you then, notice what she's holding in her hand in the painting? Isn't it uh, the little bouquet that's on its side? It's a hat. Okay. It should have been a bouquet. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm mixing, I'm mixing all, all the ruined, Halloween th- puns. You ruined my joke. Sorry. You were supposed to guess something else. I'm sorry, Shimp. What was I supposed to guess? Uh, I don't know. A diploma? <laughs> a diploma. A little dog's foot. What? Oh, one of those little beanie hats with the propeller. Coonskin cap. Anything. Dog's foot? <laughs> you know, there were a lot. A severed there were, a No, severed no, animals. no. No, no. I was thinking more that dogs were used in lots of... Where 16 to the 18th century paintings. I'm sure. sorry. Was I'm she going, shaking hands I'm with the dog? I'm going into my art history classes. It was for fidelity. Anyway. Okay, no. No, not a severed dog's <laughs> with little blood droplets in the corner of her mouth. No. This is becoming... This film was more grisly than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was restrained, but I guess not. Anyway. <laughs> okay. And there's the uh, the table turning scene, which I think is fun, and then the literal page turning scene when the ghost we we don't know which one has is trying to draw everybody's attention to the doctor's book to figure out what actually happened. And it's pretty fun. And part of why it looks so great is Charles Lang, who was the cinematographer, and this film was actually nominated for best cinematography. And Charles Lang had a huge career. He had dozens and dozens and dozens of credits, and including The Cat and the Canary, mm-hmm. which came before this we mentioned before, Some Like It Hot, The Big Heat, and Ace in the Hole being some of wow. my very favorites. Yeah, which also looks fantastic. Yeah. So a master of the black and white, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And Lang is a great example of the thing that we like to encourage on the show, which is that making those connections and connecting those dots tracking down that artist, not necessarily the lead performers mm-hmm. or the director even, but all the other technicians and contributors that you might not necessarily pay attention to, but that are often directly responsible for the film. And you can follow their chain through the rest of their career and find these other things that you like. I was thinking a lot about that sort of thing in relation to Rebecca as we yes. watched this. We just got to see this, by the way, in the theater for the first time. Last week. Which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Really enjoyed seeing it like that. I think it was, it's one of those to me that feels made for that. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, we got to see it on 35 millimeter, which I've I've never seen it that way before. So we were really lucky to be able to catch that. But a lot of the time, like I was saying, I was thinking about it in relation to Rebecca, your first choice for the show a few weeks ago, and how many analogs there are to that, and how much compare and contrast I was doing in my head. And you have all of these sorts of connections in terms of theme Mm -hmm. and look. Absolutely. They're four years apart, so very close. Right. You've got the young, naive, innocent girl who Mm -hmm. is swept off her feet by the older, sophisticated man. 
you've got convertibles and seaside cliffs and you, you even have um Miss Danvers analog. You do with, with Miss Holloway. Miss Holloway and the relationship that's discussed, alluded to, she and Mary Meredith were in her words, very, very close, and they planned their lives and how they were going to take over the world. And and critically, not doing it the way everyone else was doing it. Wink, absolutely. Wink. Yes, it didn't involve other men mm-hmm. in the scenario. And I don't mean to suggest that any close female or male relationship at the time had to be a latent homosexual relationship. I do think that those lines are... I, I think those dots are being connected with oh, this I think film. So too. I think it's suggested. And you and I aren't the only ones. The Catholic Legion of Decency, when the film came out, the man who was in charge of it at the time wrote a letter to our good friend, really? Will Hayes. Oh, um, no good was going to come of that. No. For filmgoers. <laughs> no. He, he said in his letter, and I quote, In certain theaters... Large audiences of a questionable type attended the film at unusual hours. Uh, what does that mean? Were they showing it at 2 a.m.? What is that? <laughs> Three in the afternoon? So he encouraged him to take greater care next time when presenting anything so potentially inflammatory and suggestive to yeah. movie-going audiences. They would have had to have cut the whole character out, right. pretty much. But yeah, she's she's definitely that Mrs. Danvers all the way down to the staring eyes. Oh, yes. She worships her memory in the same way. Yes. She has that, she has the second huge portrait of Mary Meredith in her office and it dominates everything. That's the one that has the hat. The other one might oh, actually have, have a the, bouquet. Oh, maybe I was... So so maybe you're right now that I think about (laughs) it. Okay, we'll have to watch it again and see. So a lot of parallels to Rebecca. Rebecca, to me, I enjoy quite a bit more than this one, but this Mm -hmm. one is is great, great fun, I think. Me too. I think I kind of fall on the same scale of enjoyment, and I process it in a similar way Mm -hmm. that you do, because a thing you said when we were leaving the screening last week made me think a lot about this, how it was a much lighter entertainment. It's Rebecca Light, essentially. It it is. There's not quite as much to sink your teeth into, definitely. And the feeling that I had walking out of this was that I had attended this at a Saturday matinee, I guess with all of these questionable types. But I'd, I'd gone to this movie at a Saturday matinee, and which, of course, had never happened. I was recalling an experience I've never really had. It just, it felt like those days of yore, maybe Mm -hmm. that I'm sort of making up possibly, but just leaving with a warm feeling. Right. Like you'd seen a newsreel and a cartoon. Absolutely. I got my full 10 cents worth Mm -hmm. with this. Well, it certainly, the film itself certainly in its tone fits into that popular entertainment slot as far as that sort of thing goes. In those times, at least before television when American culture was going through difficult strenuous times they turned to the movies as their main if not only source of entertainment Mm -hmm. when you look at attendance numbers for those certain time periods 1930 for instance in the height of the Great Depression that is the high watermark for film attendance in the United States which still has never been come close to. Wow what was the what was the rate? 66 percent of United States citizens went to the movies once a week. That, that's Two out amazing. of every three people you know <laughs> went to the movies 
every week. That's amazing. When I was a kid, my mom and I went every week. When I was when I was young, we did a similar thing. My grandmother or my mother took us all the mm-hmm. time. And then when this came out in 1944, it was close to that. Not quite as high, mm-hmm. but you're deep into World War II at yes. this point. And so people are looking for distractions. And so at that point, 80 to 90 million people a week went to the movies. I can't, I cannot wrap my mind around. If it gives you any way to sort of put it in perspective, last year, 229 million people went to the movies in the U.S. Total for the Total. year. That would have been eclipsed in 1944 by January 20th or so. <sighs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. So we were we were going to the movies Constantly. and we did walk out with that feeling of, oh, everything ended well and the the ghosts were laid to rest and Right. When you look at what was extremely popular in nineteen forty four, for instance, when this came out, three of the top five grossing films were musicals. Going my way was number one. And, ah. and it was a critical as well as commercial success because yeah, it was the best winning. picture mm-hmm. also. And, of course, the war was on everybody's mind because a number of other patriotic or war pictures were in that list. 19 releases in 1944 cracked $3 million. 11 of those 19 were war-related. Ah, yeah. So people were looking for distraction, anywhere to spend their money that they were supposed to be saving, but they still consumed and consumed and consumed as much as possible. The busiest day ever at Macy's, for instance, in New York City, Mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor Day, 1944. Was the busiest sales day at Macy's up until that point. I'm sure that record's been eclipsed by now. But Hmm. people were looking for something to do to take their mind off of it. And this sort of light entertainment where you have a few laughs, you have a few chills, and everything Mm -hmm. evens out at the end was exactly what people were looking for. Mm -hmm. It's a great example of how, at its heart, horror is a super conservative genre. And... I, it's hard for me to uh, to really grasp that. I think I guess I'm thinking a little bit more about newer titles that seem to really push the envelope. Even the things that push the envelope as far as gore, as far as extreme violence. Mm-hmm. When you look at the overall arc of the story, what happens is everything is returned to the status quo. The monster or the evil is defeated. Yes, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. Everyone is safe again. With notable exceptions, the entire horror genre is built on putting everything back in order and making everyone feel safe again. Punishment is meted out. Right. Usually a hero emerges. Right. Somehow, generally. This is why our previous episode, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, made such a huge impact on me. Because when you go to that final frame, which the movie essentially stops in mid-chainsaw buzz, nothing is resolved. Absolutely. You don't know what's going to happen, who lives, whether the police are on their way. Because I've asked you each time, does the truck driver get away? Right. I, I, I can't tell. You are left still completely unresolved as far as what is going to happen to these characters. And even now, though, those sorts of examples, although they happen more frequently, are still fewer and farther between Mm -hmm. than either evil is defeated or even worse, it is momentarily put down so they can foster a chain of sequels. Right. 
Well, it, it definitely resolves itself in this movie. Oh, The sure. ghosts are laid to rest. Right. The couples are happy and skipping off into the sunset at the end. Miss Holloway, the undercurrent, she's defeated right. as well. So right. these questionable types are put down again. There are a couple of things about that that I think are interesting. When you go, if you go back and look at that final scene, look at Russell's face. And look and see if she is really happy. Do you think she is? Or do you think she is exactly where the narrator figure in Rebecca was? Now that this trauma is set aside, now what I have to look forward to is this weird, in the uninvited case, not loveless. Because there's obviously an attraction and playfulness. It's a much lighter. Yes. But there's still this awkward feeling that you don't quite buy him as the romantic hero well i have a problem with gail russell mm-hmm. sorry don't apologize I to could, me well <laughs> she had a tough life yeah she died very young 36 36 right? alcoholism mm-hmm. whenever i look back at these stars lives i was also looking up Jean tierney today and her she had diagnosed m- mental illness but right. i really feel like with a lot of these folks it was undiagnosed mental illness that then manifested itself in addiction mm-hmm. of some some kind so pretty tough life and she said that she had terrible stage fright and nerves and had a really difficult time trying trying to control them She's not that effective in this movie for me. I've seen her in a couple of other things. She's not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination. She can't really sell it. The accent's terrible. So it eh, she's not my favorite. I do have a fun fact, though. Okay. As you had mentioned earlier, making these connections. Mm-hmm. So Cornelia Otis Skinner, who is also an author, and she plays Miss Holloway in this, she wrote a book called Our Hearts Were Young and Gay, and it was made into a film. And actually, Gail Russell plays Cornelia Otis Skinner in that film. And it came out, I believe, about the same time as this one. I have a fun fact as well. Okay. Or two, even. Also directed by Lewis Allen. Mm-hmm. Director of this film. And they were released one after another. Literally. The Uninvited was released on September 1st, 1944. Huh. Our Hearts Were Young and Gay was released on September 2nd, 1944. Okay. And then they did a follow-up, and she played her again a couple of years after that. So a um, little strange connection between the two of them. They were terribly intertwined for a period of I a few so. years, yeah. it looks like. Also, even more fun fact. A funner fact? Not the funnest fact, but a funner fact. Okay. The Uninvited was Lewis Allen's debut feature. Wow. You can't tell. When you look at it, it does not look like a first film. Mm-hmm. He, he made one short prior to that. And then this was his debut feature film. Or should I say, debut feature I did see that one coming. (laughs) God. (gasps) But to go back a little bit, Mm -hmm. jokes aside. Okay. I was thinking more about how, again, in terms of our show and the things we like to talk about, how it fits into your personal cinematic lexicon. What are the elements about it that you find so appealing? I can guess a few. Okay. Do you want to take a stab? I'm guessing that it appeals to you a great deal because, again, you relate to it so much. The things that you love about it, because they turn up again. If you go back and look at the history of the podcast, the short history of the podcast so far, three of the four episodes that you have now chosen, Mm -hmm. Rebecca, Hannah and her sisters, and now The Uninvited, have this theme of naive younger girl 
swept off her feet by erudite, handsome, sophisticated, oh, older man. It sounds man. terrible when you put it like that. I, what I guess I really wanted to know is how does it now feel to be living your dream? <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful, darling. <laughs> If we would only move to Land's End, like I've been asking for since the day we got married, it would all come true. It would all be great. But what are the other things in it that you really relate to? What do you think are the things that it's made of? Say if you had to put together the prototypical Erica Long film that I love, what's in there and how come? I do feel kind of like a dope now because it is pretty simple. It's uh, living by the ocean is a a huge one. I have this vision of how everything sounds and smells and feels, and those houses fit right into that. Yeah, it's this aspirational thing of where I want to live. And I don't know that I... Mm, I haven't formulated this. I'm feeling a little bit tongue-tied. Do you want, for instance, a dark, malevolent, possibly lesbian maternal presence... (laughs) Bent on driving you insane. Hmm. Uh, no. But if the house price is right, I would really <laughs> consider it. I would really consider that one. If we could ghost bust that thing and know that it would be done, yeah, no problem. I want to see the ocean on the ceiling like they do in the beginning. It's pretty exciting. In the studio. And they have a dog and a cat. Doesn't that fulfill your hope too? Or the dog part? The dog part. The least. cat for me. I think back to when she saw that studio for the first time, and she refers to it as looking like a cucumber frame. <laughs> and it, I thought, was beautiful. Uh, that immediately was the room that I wanted to live and oh, work in the most. Absolutely. Plus, they have fireplaces in the bathroom. That's Life of Riley. Super cool. Yeah. Okay, so what is this prototypical film? There's a mystery mm-hmm. that the young people band together to solve. That appeals to me. The location appeals to me. Wearing dresses that go all the way down to the floor sometimes, that appeals to me. You, you know what? The more I think about it, it really is solving the mystery. Anything where, where the people solve the mystery, I'm going to go for 100%. So it's the puzzle it aspect is. of it. It is. In addition to the geography. Yeah. A cool mm-hmm. puzzle. Cool puzzle. In a cool, cool setting. Cool house. Yeah. And I apparently want a family of weirdos, <laughs> if you go back and look at my choices, <laughs> which... I think I have. Mm-hmm. I think I've got that one covered. Agreed. And either chainsaws or a cross-country trip. Okay. All right. Do Beautiful Wives feature into those at all? If you go back to It's a Gift, hmm. no. <sighs> if you go back right. to The Old Dark House, on the other hand, and Gloria oh, yeah. Stewart, she's a peach. You've got it going on. So you got a 50-50 shot. Texas Chainsaw, I guess we're just going by those masks. Right. They looked pretty good. Yeah. And you, you, uh, I know you think you're an aspiring curmudgeon, but you got the curmudgeon part down. <laughs> so, done. Well, since you love this idea so much of living by the seaside mm-hmm. and jaunting about solving mysteries. mysteries. Genteel mysteries. I was going to give you a quiz to see how well you could do. Okay. In this particular instance. <laughs> All right. The movie's set in Cornwall. Yes. Cornwall, I don't know if the listeners know, but has a very distinct dialect. It has a separate language, in fact. It does. But mm-hmm. in addition to that, it has turns of phrase and expressions that might be a little confusing to the average Yank who just decides to go 
plop down in the middle of the village, buy a house on the seaside, and just begin to live there. Okay, so this is what will happen, quite likely, when we do move there, which is going to happen. Right. Definitely. So if we go to Land's Inn, like okay. you want, yeah. and you are unpacking the house, and you find that we need some household item, and you run down to the apothecary to get okay. it, mm-hmm. as you pass your neighbors on the street, uh-huh. I'm going to say some things that they might say to you. <laughs> okay. And you just respond how you would. Just let instinct take over. Okay. And we'll see how well you do. Okay. If someone was to say to you, for instance, I'll just be that person. Okay. I'm not going to do the accent. Sure, because, yeah. But. Impossible. That bloke is cakey. I would say, where's the cake? Can I have some? Dang it. (laughs) So what does cakey mean? Richard Dawson. Okay. You like this app? <laughs> That's pretty good. I downloaded this just for this. <laughs> Can you get... Do you have one that goes, Auga? We'll find out. Okay. 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 Next. Next question. All right. Where should we go? I'm checking. Again, where's the cake? Can I have some cake? Dang it. That means thirsty. Oh, shoot. Okay. You're a great Dobek. Why, thank you, sir. Stupid person. (laughs) Sheesh. I don't know. I think I'm going to be pretty popular. You'll at least be a never-ending fount of delight (laughs) to them. (laughs) And the village dunce. Gets on. Uh, uh, Say it, don't spray it. Judges? Yay! I got one. It just means don't talk rubbish. Okay. So any okay. sort of... So my sick burn right. to their sick burn cancels those out. Okay, hit me. Why don't you lay down here on this splat? Whoa. Uh, my husband will be home later on. Could that have gone either way? It could Depending have. on the scenario. It's a patch of grass. Hmm, okay. So they could Go have been on. inviting you for a picnic. Okay. Sexy picnic is what it sounds like. <laughs> I'm getting stripped up for this interview. Um, well, uh, don't let me stop you. Yes. Technically correct. Okay. It means dressed appropriately. <laughs> okay. Okay. So all my saucy winks and answers, 50% of the time, are appropriate. Give or take. Okay. Speaking of, here's <laughs> one right. for you. Okay. Have a titty. Whoa. Can I make that the, uh, uh, oh, grab my shirt collar? They just offered you a potato. Oh, I, I should have taken it. You should have. Shoot. You like potatoes. I do. My titty is zamzoozled. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me get you another titty. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. I'm assuming burnt or under or up. overcooked. Yes. You nailed that one. Yeah. You're starting to really Pot- get the hang potato, of this. Potato trivia. I can probably get. That clacky is Cooney. <laughs> um, my instinct says we don't talk like that around here, but that's probably wrong. The point of this quiz is... <laughs> Exactly that they do talk like that around here. 
You are the only one that doesn't talk like that. I always assume something is too sexy or racist or horrible or something. That only meant that this sticky, chewy food is rancid. Oh, ew, gross. So far, I still don't know where the cake is, which is pretty lousy. Okay. Okay. We're all the marbles. Oh, gosh. Oh, Lord. Is it, if it's potatoes, I have an even, even money. What's on me cock? <laughs> I, I don't know. Let me check. Judges? Yes! <laughs> yes! Is it a literal? Is that a literal one? It could be. In this case, it just means, how's it going? What's up with you? Okay. Are, is everyone asking me this 80 years old? Should I just take that as uh, at face value that they're probably not trying to get in my business or start a fight or something? I but they're wouldn't probably older it. villagers. Okay. All right. Well, since you did so well in the lightning round. Thank you. I About will... stuff on stuff's cocks. I will let you... <laughs> Give your recommendation first. Okay. Well, before I get into that, this this leads directly into my recommendation. This is the theme that really spoke to me, and this is the first film that I thought of it, which I will get to in just a second. So the theme is negative portrayals of mothers. And Mm. I so I did a little bit of research again, not exhausted, not exhaustive, excuse me, and found that you don't see a lot from this time period, well, really from any time period, that the mother, who we, the person who we think is the mother, Mary Meredith, is portrayed so negatively. She is, in fact, a deadly mother. And this is not something that you see often. There are some pre-code things where single women or married women have questionable motives Mm -hmm. or do things that might be considered immoral or unlawful but you don't see a lot of women shunning their children no you don't you might see some neurotics or or, i mean you go through the entirety of tennessee williams canon and that's all about terrible neurotic clinging awful mothers but you just don't see a lot of that in film and so this was a little bit different too one of the characters is reading notes from the doctor that was there at the time, and he explicitly states that Mary Meredith had feared and hated the idea of becoming a mother. And so that's something that you think, oh, she's a, she's a terrible person. You didn't see it in film a lot. No. You did see it in Dorothy McArdle, who wrote the source novel, in virtually everything she wrote. Ah, Okay. She had this ongoing undercurrent of maternal malevolence that sprang from her relationship with her mother. I was going to say, it had to be based on something. Well, Dorothy McArdle was a proto-feminist, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, and spent a lot of her time fighting against this idea of the Victorian woman and the Victorian mother Mm -hmm. whom... Her mother was a textbook example of. She thought of her mother as one of those fake hysterics Mm, that -hmm. frequently took to her bed. Absolutely. And was too fragile to engage with the world at large. And she couldn't stand it. And she wanted to demolish that idea forever. If you look at her novels, anyway. Because every one of those instances of those women are ultimately destroyed and dismissed. 
And again, with Mary Meredith, she's deadly. She's incredibly selfish. It's suggested that she can't love, essentially, another. Certainly not her husband, except for a jealous, possessive level. Not her, ostensibly her daughter. How much of that, though, was based on the fact that she knew that that was not her daughter? Because this is another interesting thing that I think McArdle does... We mentioned how this is kind of a gothic romance, and mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about this. Mm. Is it truly a gothic romance, or is McArdle using the framework of the gothic romance, using those conventions to critique the idea of the gothic romance? I don't find much romance in this movie, and that could be the actors themselves, or that a it's lack of chemistry. A lack of chemistry. I mean, it's subservient to the rest of the story. The story is about the mother-daughter, and it's about the haunting right. and, and these other things. And, and it's much more of a sibling relationship than anything, I think. Even though Alan Napier is really making time with Ruth Hussey <laughs> multiple times. But I don't find it to be that romantic, personally. So how does this get us to your recommendation? So my recommendation is another portrayal of a mother that I find to be really interesting and not something that's talked about or seen a lot. And the film is The Babadook from last year, Ah. 2014, directed and written by Jennifer Kent and featuring the wonderful Essie Davis. And this is a very fascinating mother-son relationship and includes a haunting as well. Yeah, I really like that. Love it. It was a good choice. My recommendation is in keeping with the theme of wailing spirits in the night. <laughs> okay. That's and a good one. My choice is The Curse of the Crying Woman. Oh. Classic Mexican horror from Fantastic. 1963, directed by Rafael Baladon. It's, uh, it basically takes the legend of La Llorona. The most basic version of the legend goes that a young woman drowned her children in the river as revenge against her philandering husband. Another interesting portrayal of a mother. Right. And a connection to the uninvited. Mm -hmm. Then was so overtaken by grief that she drowned herself and was cursed to roam the earth for the rest of her undead days. Yes. Weeping and searching for her children. Ah, okay. It is really beautiful. It's very gothic in, in the same sort of way. There's mm-hmm. the ancestral home, witches resurrecting evil spirits. It's really great and full of atmosphere, and I highly recommend it. Wonderful. So two terrific recommendations, The Babadook and The Curse of the Crying Woman. Which, I guess, brings us to the end of our second and final Halloween episode for this year. If this episode didn't scare you too much and you would like to hear more, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. While you're there, if you feel so inclined, please leave a review and or a star rating. Those star ratings really help boost our profile there and help put us in front of more potential listeners. We got a couple of really nice ratings and reviews this week, and we sure do appreciate it. Thanks to everybody that did that. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail. We have a Facebook page. Just search Magic Lantern Podcast there. You can find us on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And we have a website that is just magiclanternpodcast.com, 
where you can find all of the episodes, plus all of the show notes and supplemental material that we frequently post. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Yeah.